Hello folks, welcome back, and if you are a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast, and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Now before we get into today's show, I'd like to talk about what it means to be a high-performance human. It has nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike or run. It's got everything to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, your work habits and so much more. And if these are areas you'd like to improve on, then we would love to help you. I currently have availability to take on a couple of clients and my wife Beth, who is a certified life coach, also has some availability. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered and you can find contact details in the show notes below. So for today's guest, back in 2012, a young lady was walking through Hyde Park one summer with a sister. There was a triathlon happening and she recognized names of some of the athletes as ones she'd raced against on the running circuit. This triathlon happened to be the London Olympic Triathlon and she specifically heard the name Vicky Holland. At that time, India Lee was taking a sabbatical from her running career and looking for something different. And her running coach, like all good coaches, didn't want to lose her to sport, so he suggested she give triathlon a go. She remembered that race in Hyde Park and thought, well, why not? So she entered her first race at Blenheim. And in the 10 years since, she's gone on to win an ITU World Cup event in Italy and finish on the podium at several others, finish first in Ironman 70.3 events, race at the Ironman World 70.3 Championships, and she also won the PTO Championship event in Samarin. So this is the story of how India Lee turned herself from a top-class runner into a world-class triathlete. So let's crack on and hear from Indy. Well, hello and welcome to the show, India Lee. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure and uh, nice to see you made it back to the UK. <laughs> you had a few sort of travel challenges on the way back from Finland. I guess we'll yeah. get to that a bit later on. Um, <laughs> I met you recently for the first time, actually, over at Holcomb. You were doing a, a relay with Ruth and Steph, weren't you? Yes, that's um, right. And trying to race Sam Proctor. Uh, and I hadn't realised at that point what... But, uh, what a great CV that you had and uh, where you started from. So that, that piqued my interest a little bit. So maybe we can uh, maybe we can talk about your early athletic career because you didn't have the traditional path into sort of elite triathlon racing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I only actually became aware of triathlon as a sport during the 2012 Olympics in, when they were in London. Yeah. And um, I was actually walking through Hyde Park with my brother when the triathlon was on. Oh, really? and, uh, yeah <laughs> and we were like oh I wonder what this event is and um it was the triathlon and um I noticed some of the the names that were being called out like Vicky Holland was racing and I'd raced her as a as a runner as an athlete mm-hmm. and um I was like oh I used to race her and then she was racing in the triathlon at the Olympics and um that got me thinking oh a little bit more interested in in the sport did a little bit more research and um yeah the year after I ended up entering a triathlon and then that's how it all started so before that you were a runner I understand yeah. you you um spent some time on the collegiate circuit in America so tell, tell us about that I mean that's still pretty high standard to get to isn't it so t- talk me through how uh, you know how you got to that point of going to America to uh, to study yeah, so throughout growing up, I'd always been 
um, active, sporty. I do every every sport I could try at school. I was on all the sports teams, um, but running was the thing that really um, I I decided to focus on quite early, and was pretty good at it from an early age. Was quite competitive through all the age groups, doing cross country, then things like fifteen hundreds, and then three k when I was allowed, and that kind of thing. And I went to university in Southampton here for three years, graduated from there. And then my final year, I was offered a scholarship to go race for Iowa State in the US. Uh, Yeah, full ride scholarship to basically just go out there and run and be part of their cross country team, their track team. Um, And yeah, it's it's a competitive environment to be in. And uh, there were some good times and bad times, or not bad times, just looking back, probably challenging and um, a yeah competitive environment that would fuel certain behaviours between um, athletes and competitiveness with training and things like that. Um, but overall, a great experience. And is, that, is, is that something you're happy to chat about? Because it, yeah. um, I had a conversation with a lady called Pippa Wolven. Do you know Pippa? Yeah, I know Pippa, yeah. And she was on a collegiate scholarship as well. And she mentioned that um, Pippa runs the Red S Project now. And she mentioned that a lot of what happened to her and how she came to run the Red S Project started when she was in America and and that competitive atmosphere that you talk about. So if, Mm. if they're the same subjects, I'd be interested to explore that. But if we just go back a little bit to your school days, when you yeah. say that you played all sports, did you play team sports as well? Did you play yeah. football and um, and um, play rugby? It was more more hockey, netball, um, tennis. Uh, I swam until I was fourteen. Ah, okay. Um, and yeah, I wasn't so good at stuff like gymnastics. <laughs> um, or yeah, and I was also really tiny until I was about. 17 and I only started growing when I was 17 so I was yeah under five foot probably until I was in my last couple of years of school and then suddenly shot up so I was the little whippet running around in all the team sports Mm -hmm. skill level not quite high but fitness level was good enough that I could get away with it (laughs) yeah put her on the wing literally yeah put me on the wing (laughs) run up the wing smack it smack the ball back in on hockey and yeah that's great. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen photographs of Alistair Brownlee. He was pretty he was pretty small yeah. for his age yeah, until similar. he was about 16. And then, you know, yeah. I mean, look at him now. Yeah, um, exactly. But that what you said about swimming was quite interesting because um when I've chatted to people about your athletic history, they talk about your collegiate running career, but they don't mention that you were a swimmer. And I yeah. and I think if you're going to compete at, at the elite level of triathlon, you have to be starting out even if you come from another sport like you've done mm-hmm. it's important to have that basic swimming skill to be yes. able to to be able to return to because if you were starting from scratch as a swimmer I don't think you'd ever catch up on people like Lucy Hall who swam as um you know as a as a schoolgirl. yeah I uh yeah so I was a competitive swimmer until I was 14 and then I basically got to the stage where it was uh my the swimming was demanding that I was doing mornings and evenings multiple days a week but then I also wanted to be running on certain evenings and there was just a big conflict and 
it got mm-hmm. to the stage where I was trying to do too much and I had to choose mm-hmm. and I chose running. So mm-hmm. stopped swimming when I was 14 and then I guess had 10 years of no swimming. But even though I was, I didn't swim for those 10 years, I've still got the the technique and things like that that I learned when I was younger. I just had to relearn it when I decided to take up triathlon. So 14, what, what year would that have been then? Um... 2002 okay so at that time then if if you were just at the time when the talent id programs were starting up for british triathlon yeah um you if if you'd been aware of triathlon then you would have been a perfect um recruit for that because the 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 um protocol for selecting people to go into the regional squads was that they could swim and you had to yeah. be able to, I think I think the girls that age had to be able to swim sub two thirty for two hundred meters. Right. Yeah. And you had to run, oh I can't remember where it was whether it was equivalent of three thirty per kilometer. And so you had to run one kilometer. And then as you got as you got up to fifteen and sixteen, you'd have needed to swim a four hundred in under five minutes, I think. Uh, and yeah. and then run a three K in under ten minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right now? Um, yeah, because the boys had to. <laughs> Sorry, ten minutes seems pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, maybe it wasn't ten minutes. I'm thinking the boys had to run three k in under nine minutes. They had to they had to run three minutes per kilometer because at that point they'd worked out that you know that's what was going to be winning the Olympics yeah. in you know say ten years time. But mm. you you you'd have probably been there if you yeah. if you'd known about triathlon ten years early. Yeah, exactly. I probably did know about it. I just didn't think that. Um... It probably just didn't interest me because I was all about running. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so went off to college in the US, and yeah. and you said that that. Tell us about. Let's talk about the good experiences. What was what was good about um, being a runner over there? Um, just the opportunity it gives you for competition. Um, you're in the university I was in was quite well funded. We had great facilities. You basically get to live pretty much like a professional athlete would well to to a certain extent where you've got everything provided for you in terms of meals there's physios the coaching strength coaches everything like mm-hmm. it's just it's put on for you and you're expected to to use it obviously um and uh yeah I was on a competitive team so we got the I got the opportunity to travel to the regional and national meets um and race against the best people in the collegiate system which is yeah it was it was great it was a great experience it was really fun and I was I got on very well with my teammates and it was just two years of just living the dream as I thought at the time. <laughs> Is that what they call NCAA Division One then? Yes. The, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Wow. And and um were you the only person from the United Kingdom in that particular team then? Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah. Um well for my last six months when I was there, uh another a track runner came over. Um and yeah, she was on the team. But um so the, the majority of the time it was just me from the UK and so uh so you've been at you've been at Southampton for three was that three years you'd been there so what yeah. were you in you yeah. in sort of 21 when you went 
Yeah, 21, yeah. And yeah. Had, you, had you done much travelling up to that point? I'd uh, done a reasonable amount. Um, when I'd been on, like, England teams, I'd travelled to, out to races in Europe and, um, yeah, but I hadn't... I went to university in Southampton, which is only... It was only a 20-minute drive away from home. Mm-hmm. I'm close with my family. And then um, I just went home one day and I said, um, so in a month's time, I'm going to go to America for two years. Okay. <laughs> and my parents were like, right, okay, yeah. And then, yeah, off I went. Didn't Hadn't met anybody from the team. Didn't really know where I was going to be staying when I got there. And then I just arrived and figured it out. Wow. So that's quite that's quite brave and quite scary. Um for yeah, somebody was, so young yeah, and- who, who who's sort of got all that. And and it makes me think about, you know, I think we take it for granted when you live near your home that you have that support network um uh, yeah. if things are going wrong and then all of a sudden you don't have that support network. So what 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 did you do in what in times of uh, where you had a few more challenges with your life? Oh well I still called my mum. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But She's, it's not the same, is it, over the phone versus having same, somebody you, you can have a to, have a hug um, with? No, it's true. You just gotta you just gotta figure it out. And I think a lot of the people who were on the team were away from their families as mm. well, because obviously America's so huge. So you just uh, you your teammates become your family and you're close with each other and you just support each other. Just Mm. You just figure it out, yeah. You just cope. <laughs> okay, but then you said that there were some not so good times as well, and it was yeah. quite a could. Did, would you say? Would you say it was toxic, or would you just say it was just <laughs> ultra competitive? I think, with the benefit of hindsight, it was. I'm not sure it was toxic. I think it was just so competitive that everybody was trying to be better. And there were examples of people on the team who were better than you um, performing in a certain way and the way they trained and perhaps had an unhealthy relationship with food, etc. cetera, mm-hmm. that the classic runner stereotypes perhaps of thinking you need to be lighter to be faster. That just everybody was just trying to do better than everybody else in everything. Mm-hmm. And that just means that um, it's it's challenging to be in that environment and not get sucked into also behaving mm-hmm. in that way because you think, oh, they're, they're doing that because they're super dedicated. I, I want to show that I'm also super dedicated, so mm-hmm. maybe that's what I need to do as well. And uh, yeah. when you're in it, it's difficult to see the mm-hmm. bigger picture. Yeah, well, that's that pretty much what Pippa said um, <laughs> about being there. And and also I chatted with uh, Natalie Lawrence um, oh, yeah. this week um, and Natalie was at Loughborough and she was there around the, around the same time overlapping with people like Alice Hector and Jodie Swallow and, and Holly yeah. Avil. Now, I've not spoken with Holly, but I have I've spoken with Jodie and I've spoken with Alice and and they also talked about that that sort of toxicity, if you like, of the atmosphere and the eating yeah. behaviours and how it's it can be contagious and you'd, you'd have to be a super strong personality like you say not to get sucked into that and yeah. start to be affected by it yeah yeah and I think it's the age that you are well the age that I was when I was there is also an age where you haven't necessarily got some 
old wisdom on you mm. in your head to be able to overcome and um yeah be better <laughs> mm. did, did you said did you did you feel like you were getting sucked into that or were you able to sort oh. of avoid that no absolutely got sucked into it i was um there was this culture that you had to run basically as much as you could. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I was doing ridiculous things like running, like trying to run 100 mile weeks and not eating any carbs. And that only ended in one way, which was when I got home from, well, firstly, my performances were not great. And when I got back from college, when I'd um, finished my course there, I came home and was just absolutely done with running. I was just yeah. completely burned out. Couldn't couldn't do anything to get any faster um, in my perception. And I thought I was doing everything. My my perception of what I was doing was I was doing everything as well as I could. I was trying to mm -hmm. be light. I was running all this mileage. Um, and yet I was still just a little bit average. So mm -hmm. I was like, done <laughs> wow and and that's that's a huge thing when you know from what you've said about how much you loved running and that was the thing that you mm. chose to to sort of do above all of those other sports which I'm sure you enjoyed because yeah. you know you wouldn't have kept playing them but you chose you chose running and then you get to a point where you've pushed yourself so far <laughs> that you, you don't like it anymore yeah I hated it yeah but I still thought that I wanted to carry on doing it because it's like, oh, I've always done it. I'm a runner. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a... Okay, so when, you, so when you got back then, how did you pull yourself out of that sort of downward spiral? Oh, well, I went and worked as a painter and decorator for six months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Didn't Wasn't interested in running. Um, and then my running coach, um, actually, who was, who'd coached me for a number of years and knew me really well, he, I think he was trying to find a way of keeping me in sport and active because he knew that I loved it really. Mm -hmm. And he was able to say, hey, why don't you go and do a triathlon as a bit of fun? Um, I think it was a way of making sure that I didn't just disappear from sport completely. And, yeah, so I entered Blenheim in the January of – 2013 and um I was like yeah that's it I'll go try Blenheim so went and bought all the swim kit <laughs> went and um yeah got in the pool got a bike and off I went <laughs> uh okay so you, you just like that um <laughs> just from like, one, that, off just I like went. that from from yeah. one well at least at least it got you back into uh, training regularly and um yeah. you sort of you, you managed to reverse that that trend because it's it's horrible and I've I've spoken to you know, lots of guests and athletes that I know that have ended up burning out for one reason or other. Often food is at the heart of it. Yeah. And it's yeah. males and females, as we now know that, you know, Red S isn't just a, a something that affects female athletes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it isn't just that. It's, I think it seems to be a pattern amongst triathletes. They're high achieving people um, and they want to do the best. But <laughs> sometimes the, the, the drive to do your best ends up with unhealthy behaviors doesn't it and yeah um, yeah and then it forces you away from the thing that you love doing um mm. so yeah well done for finding a way to reverse that and well done to your coach for keeping you in the sport that's oh, a yeah. sort of I mean that's what coaching is all about isn't it is, yeah. is identifying something and helping point somebody in the right direction 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Goodbye. <laughs> um. So what what was it like going back to the pool then, after so oh. many years out? <laughs> It was, um, I was absolutely clueless. <laughs> really? I would just, yeah, I'd just get in and I'd just swim 1,500 metres because I thought <laughs> 1,500 is how far an Olympic distance race is. So I'd just get in and swim 1,500 every time. <laughs> but, um, you weren't, but you weren't clueless about swimming. I mean, it's like riding a bike, isn't it? You know, oh, you know, yeah. you know how, how to stay to afloat. Yeah. yeah, I knew how to swim, but I didn't know how to get better at swimming. So, um, yeah, I just, I did a few weeks of just going to the pool myself, by myself and making it up as I went along. Uh, and then I signed up to do a one day swim course with Richard Stannard because he lives locally to me. Okay. And, um, I just went along to that and, um, I had to fill in like a, a form of a bit of background before I went and so I think he'd seen that I'd said I was a competitive runner and then he saw me swimming and um just said oh what's your what's your plans for triathlon then (laughs) I said oh I'm just gonna go do Blenheim and he said oh well uh, I think your swimming's actually quite decent if you if you wanted to come along and do some swim coaching uh some swim uh sessions with me then you're welcome to just jump in and um just be around and so I said oh yeah okay so I did that and then just started swimming with him regularly and mm-hmm. um yeah he helped me get back well he helped me improve my swim to the extent where I could go into a triathlon <laughs> and so how how was that first triathlon then <laughs> it was uh yeah it was over uh yeah fun it was really fun it was at Blenheim and it's a great it's a great course it's closed roads it was horrendous when I started trying to run Mm -hmm. (laughs) there was so much to think about (laughs) but I absolutely loved it yeah it was great I definitely caught the bug and I was more competitive than I thought I would be and that was a nice feeling, having felt that I'd been underperforming and running for so many years. I'd found this mm-hmm. new sport that I was quite competitive at and thought I had a lot of scope to improve at. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> wow. And w- w- we've not touched on your cycling then. So you, you bought all this kit for swimming and yeah. obviously you've got the swim background. Uh, yeah. what, about, what about cycling? Did you get an old rusty bike out of the garage or borrow one <laughs> or did you go out and splash some cash well, I'd got a bike and I'd been using it to ride to and from my painting and decorating. Okay. <laughs> so I'd had that and I'd enjoyed that process of riding a bike, um, which was part of the reason I think why my running coach suggested that I do a triathlon because he'd, he'd seen that I really enjoyed riding a bike. I'd go out in all my running kit, you know, no cycling kit, just mm-hmm. running kit. And uh, yeah just uh, really took to it really enjoyed it and it just seemed like the right thing for me to be trying to do at that time okay so that's that's good then that you have uh, have done Blenheim and sort of got a positive experience because that, that yeah. really helps doesn't it so um what, what was the next step for you the next step was uh say 
my coach said to me, I think you've done quite well there. You were quite competitive off, you know, six months of training. Why don't you give this a proper go? So, <laughs> so um, I did a few more races throughout that year. Uh, and then I uh, really just stepped to the training and thought I'll give this a proper whack for a year see how I get on in the 2014 season mm-hmm. and at the end of that I'll decide whether I need to go and get a proper job or if I see if I can pursue triathlon a little bit more mm-hmm. so I started swimming a lot I did a lot of swimming because I knew that I wanted to do non-drafting stuff I wanted to do drafting races in the uh, elite racing so obviously the swim in that is crucial and so I swam uh, like basically every day I was doing double days I was yeah I was basically a swimmer doing a bit of cycling and running <laughs> <laughs> which was wasn't the most fun thing and it was exhausting but it definitely put me in a position where I could be a little bit more competitive yeah because if you want to use that run run power you've got you've got to be in that front pack really haven't yeah. you it's, it's, you don't want to play pac-man all the time no yeah you've got to be you've got to be in it otherwise there's no point <laughs> now I've, I've noticed when i look at your um results cv that you were doing some elite racing so um how did you manage to get into that because i think at that point you still had to be invited to do those races didn't you, you couldn't just enter yeah um, I got in based on my run times. I think part of the entry process was if you if you've been competitive in if you've been a competitive runner mm-hmm. and you've got somebody who can say, oh yeah, she'll she'll be able to swim at X X time, then you got it. You could get a start. And then once I got a start in one race yeah. and got a good result, then it was just you can carry on racing basically you've proven yourself so mm. yeah. yeah and and prove yourself you did actually <laughs> you you uh you started to get some good results didn't you when when was your first um um representation for great britain can you remember that um uh yeah i did a well i, I did like european cups where you're running you're representing gb but you're not selected for it you're just wearing mm-hmm. a gb suit yeah, I did. I did one one World Cup in in Tijavaris, super famous World Cup in the triathlon world. In, and in, I think yeah. I came. You have to do heats in the final, and I think I came second to last in my heat, <laughs> the first for my first World Cup. And um, I was just completely overwhelmed. It was a huge step up. I wasn't ready for it, mm. but uh, that was at the end of 2014, I think. Yeah. Uh, but for an actual GB selection, I oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, I can I can tell you I can tell you when you were doing it? something. But I I'm, I mean I'm looking here. You raced in the ETU Cup final. Um, um, let's see, uh, 2015 looks well, looks like ETU ITU Rio. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did event. yeah test event in Rio? Yeah. I okay. Was awful. <laughs> But before then, I mean, you didn't. You'd still been getting some decent results, hadn't you? I mean, you were GB National Triathlon Championships. You were fourth overall. So, um, yeah. who would you've been racing against there, um, Vicky? Um, maybe. 
No, it was people like uh, Emma Pallant. Um, who else? Uh, I can't remember. It feels like so long ago. It feels like a different lifetime ago now that I do seventy point threes. Yeah, but so you uh, were you were you were starting, but you were starting to gain some traction at that point, weren't you? You were getting yeah. some results against you were getting some results against prominent athletes. So your name must have started cropping up a little bit more on the radar of the selectors and the sort of um, yeah. people at the top of the sort of coaching world. Yeah, I think I think it was, uh, but I was also. I trained, I didn't train in any of the performance centres. I was also a little bit removed and nobody really knew what what I was about and what I was doing and probably where I was. (laughs) So I think that meant I was still a little bit under the radar because I wasn't that, I'm not that big a profile, I'm not huge on social media, so... People don't really know who I am. I wonder if they see me. (laughs) I wonder if, given your experiences in America, that being out of a performance center was a good thing for you to just just get on with it and do your own thing rather than being drawn into that back into another ultra competitive environment. Yeah, it was definitely a good thing and an environment that um, I've gone back into a performance center uh, when I went on to program, and I think. I definitely thrive more not being in a performance center, Mm. (laughs) having done it, not done it, done it. And then now I'm not in it, not in one again. I know that I'm much happier being in control of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Which, (laughs) um, which performance center did you go to train at then in Bath? Yeah, I was in Bath. So it's still quite a small, a small one compared to Lisa Loughborough but it's still that environment where you're not really, you don't really have that much autonomy mm, over what you're doing when you do it. When did you go there? When Reese and Vicky had arrived or was it before then? Yeah, they'd been there for a year and then I went in 20, 2019. I went oh, over there. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, I guess at that point then you you had a, you know, you talked about the wisdom of dealing with situations like that when you were in America, you'd, but you'd accumulated all of that, well, a lot yeah. of that wisdom about how to deal with that situation. So you'd have been better, better able to cope, I guess, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was older and I'd had the previous experience and it was, it, it definitely left a bit of a scar in the fact that I was determined not, not to get in that situation again, where... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything was a little bit competitive, so I think my my personality and my nature has always been to. I when I'm training with people, I'm not interested in being competitive. I just think, look, we're all training here. We can all train together and support each other. We don't need to try and outdo each other on every single rep. So mm-hmm. that's definitely changed my philosophy on how I train in a group <laughs> that's, that's really difficult though when you have that attitude but everybody else says no come on and we're here and I'm wanting to beat you today in training yeah. um, and it's, yeah. it, it must be really difficult to detach yourself from it and try and get yeah. on with your set and rep and because the coaches can get drawn into that as well can't they yeah definitely I think sometimes it would I would maybe bec- maybe come across as being indifferent to what we were doing but really I was just trying to maintain my uh desire not to get drawn into silliness so mm. yeah <laughs> yeah I know um yeah obviously I 
worked with Jack a little bit at the Performance Centre in Leeds. And I think I think sometimes the less experienced coaches try to instill that competitiveness between the athletes, feeling like it gives them a better training effect. Yeah. But but yeah. without but without realizing, you know, once they've finished the session, what happens in the background? Um that's yes. that, that's starting to get a bit angsty. Yeah. The tension just can just build and build and build and then it goes far beyond that final rep competitiveness to just being general day-to-day annoyance among a group yeah and I think sometimes you don't even have to encourage that as a coach I think if it's implied that it's important for you to be competitive then the mindset of certain individuals means that that's how they that's how they behave yeah and it's it's, you know particularly if they're influential figures within that performance group it must be way more difficult to try and separate yourself from that behavior yeah yeah I think, but on the whole, my time in Bath, the group was a good group. So mm. no, it was not, small I, enough that we could all get on yeah. and, yeah, so it was all right. Yes, I'm not in trying to imply that that's how no, it would no. be because I, I know, Reese. I think that's just that's just a generalisation comment of, of how certain coaches can yeah. react, whether it's a performance centre or some of the private training groups that, that you know, exist now. Yeah, um, yeah. I've sure. also had sort of issues like that, haven't they? Yeah. Um, let's talk about Rio for a moment. You mentioned that you were rubbish. That was that was the <laughs> word you used. Was that your perception of the overall outcome of the race? That you know the time and the fact that you finished forty um, ninth, um, or was it just was it just the your whole experience of that that sort of um, event? No, it's more that it was my lack of experience going into such an event. And my lack of ability as well, to be honest. I'd qualified for that event through finishing on a podium at a European Cup earlier in the year, which had been my best result by by far up to that point. And it was a gateway event that British Triathlon used to have Mm -hmm. uh, when when they're going through Olympic selection. So I'd got third at that race, which entitled me to a start at the test event. So I went into the test event and I was just not good enough really to be there. (laughs) And that became apparent quite quickly where I was just at the back of the race all day and it was just really, really hard. So it was, it was good in, in the respect that I never expected to be at the front of the race. So I knew that it was going to be a hard race, whatever, but it gave me the opportunity to know how far away I was from being at the front of the race so even though it was a a rubbish result on paper it also gave me a lot of information to go away and train over the winter to then come back in 2016 and see if I could get any closer which I did. I think that's that's a really interesting insight into what I'd call a performance mindset that it would have been easy to walk away from that and go I was rubbish you know and blah 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 um, and just look at all the negatives but you've managed to take some positives out of it and the lessons that you've learned and then put those into practice to um, come back stronger next year. So what what were the key things that you, um, that you identified? Was it just, you, you know, like, like, for instance, in the swim, you said, you know, you were struggling there. Was it just your overall fitness or was it because it was a sea swim, wasn't it? And I guess that requires a slightly different technique um, to swimming in a lake or a pool. Yeah, it was, I think my fitness was fine. It was 
technique and just racecraft that I was lacking because I was inexperienced in the sport and inexperienced at that level of racing where there's so many people who are all so good there's you've got to find your space within that and I was I was willing to let people have their space rather than fight for my space mm-hmm. so yeah it was I think it was mainly a technique thing and also swimmability thing which is which was the story of the first five years of my career when I was racing short course um so yeah I just went away and swam a lot more (laughs) Mm -hmm. learned learned technically how to ride a bike better and just learned how to learned how to race basically I think there's there's things that I've noticed um at that level that are little things that you perhaps don't necessarily think of straight away like um, you're in. You, you're at the right pace. I mean, every every it goes off it, like it's mental, isn't it? The pace at the yeah. beginning, but then well, pay, the pace always slows down if you can just hang on long enough for for that to happen. But then, if you just lose concentration on that first buoy, yeah. either you get on the inside and then it's just like a, a fist fight, isn't it? Even <laughs> you know, f- um, for the first thirty seconds, you know, and it's brutal. Uh, yeah. But then if you even if it's if it's not a fist fight and you come out of that and you just lose concentration, you lose the feet of the person in front, it's a bit like the elastic snapping at the back of a bike peloton, isn't it? It's like you have to work twice as hard to get back. Um, mm-hmm. But you know that if you don't, then it's going to make it much harder on um, on the bike. And, I get, and at that level, coming out of the water two or three seconds down is quite a big gap on the bike. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and that's... Just that, all <laughs> Yeah, and that so that I guess that's not necessarily a technique thing. Uh, sorry, that's not necessarily a fitness thing. That is a technique thing, and also the um, the, the biking is perhaps not not about how good your FTP is, but can you cope with that stochastic pace, accelerate, decelerate, yeah. corner, accelerate, decelerate? That's that's a different fitness altogether, isn't it? Yeah, it's completely different, and it's something that I hadn't had much experience of. So um, that was one of the things that I went away and worked on. So what did you do? To, what did you do to change your bike training then to to cope with the sort of criterium style racing? Uh, I went and did some crit racing. Mm-hmm. Got into some crit racing. Changed the structure of ses- the bike sessions I was doing. Did some more stochastic stuff, like you said, and yeah, just uh, bike handling. I I did some skill sessions on my bike. Mm-hmm rode a mountain bike quite a lot uh-huh. do, you uh, cyc- kind of... do you any cyclocross i didn't do cyclocross at that stage but subsequently i have done <laughs> yeah yeah it's th- it's those little things and when you when you go to watch something like the lead when we used to watch the leeds wts it's it become when you're seeing it live it's really apparent um particularly yeah. you know if you watch jessica learmont racing for instance um her skill through those tight corners in leads at cornering and cornering without losing speed um yeah. stood out compared to a lot of the other girls a bit further yeah, down the pack yeah she's brilliant she's exceptional yeah yeah um it's not all about I remember jody swallow saying that, that 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 she struggled with that but then when she went to 70.3 she's got such a big engine from swimming then that that, <laughs> that that um really helped her and so did you because you did have some success didn't you at short course you did you win in sardinia or corsica 
I won in Cagliari. I did a won a World Cup in Cagliari uh, in early 2016. And then I won the Europeans two weeks later. So wow. that's a good, good couple of weeks. So do you feel like that was vindication for all the training and the lessons you yeah. learned in Rio? Absolutely. Yeah, it was great. Wow. <laughs> it, yeah, just showed that it was satisfying because I'd worked so hard and I got a result at the end of it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it is that one of those moments where you're going along just sort of, you know, as you're racing, realizing where you're at and thinking, well, it actually happens and it's all work now and patting yeah. yourself, mentally patting yourself on the back as you're going along. <laughs> yeah. Well, on both occasions I I was on a in a breakaway on the bike and I was just thinking, Oh, this is wicked. <laughs> Brilliant. Just great fun. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you've got the running to come, which is like your strong suit. Yeah, well, yeah, it had been, but then because I'd had so much, because I'd have to work so hard on the bike, my running would always have suffered and I'd never been able to run properly off Mm -hmm. the bike because I was just working so hard just to keep up. So, yeah, it felt like on those days it just came together and I was able to show that I could run as well. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Uh, so at what point did you decide that um, you were going to give the longer stuff a try? That was in 2018. I had a bit of a rubbish year where I had quite a lot of illness and hadn't been able to race too much. And it got to uh, the end of the end of the summer and I just wanted to go and do something for a bit of fun. And the Weymouth 70.3 was just down the road from me. so. I entered that and just went and did it as a end of season. See, see if I liked the event, see if I liked the distance kind of thing. And so headed down to Weymouth and it was the wettest day. Hmm. The swim was shortened because it was so rough. Mm-hmm. It rained all day, but I, yeah, I found I really enjoyed the distance and the type of event and then I just decided, I think, I think this is for me. Up, up until that point then, when you, when you were racing for GB, had you been on funding at all or were you still sort of paying your own way? No, I was on funding from 2016 until 2021. Yeah. Right. And mm. um, does that bring its own pressures being on funding? Yeah, it brings yeah, it does in in a certain way because you've got you've you you've got people to answer to. So when mm. you're paying your own way, you don't have anybody checking up on you, asking what you're doing, mm-hmm. where you are, etc. But once you get onto funding, you've got to answer to a performance coach, performance um, director, head coach. You've got all this communication. Um, and yeah, I found, I found it quite challenging to be honest, because mm-hmm. I lost the autonomy that I had before, which had gotten me to being able to get onto funding and the results that I got, I'd got before I was on the national team. And then, yeah, there are, there are expectations and yeah, I, I struggled with that because I like being incognito and mm-hmm. I, yeah, doing my own thing, bit of a lone ranger. 
but that's not possible when you're on funding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, well, we can fast forward a little bit now. Do, do you have sponsorship now that allow, that, that provides you with enough funding? Uh, I I do have sponsors, but I mostly pay my way through prize money. Right, because yeah. I'm I guess that once you get to the point where you have sponsors, that sort of accountability goes from the governing body to the sponsors yeah, really doesn't it yeah, and it's just yeah. but it's just still just a different sort of responsibility and pressure yeah 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 but mm-hmm. I, I it's uh you still have responsibility towards well I still have responsibility towards my sponsors but they're not telling me where and when I should be training and with who and mm-hmm. etc so well I'll ask I'll ask you about your sponsors at the end because I always think it's important to give them a shout out yeah um Let's uh, let's talk about your seventy point three career then. So um, you won Weymouth. Um, it that's, won Weymouth. At, that's at the end of the season, then, isn't it? So uh, yeah. Or did you did you sort of get the impetus to go and find a couple of races at the end of the season in a warmer <laughs> part of Europe? Uh, no, I think I did Weymouth, and I thought that's plenty for this year. <laughs> okay. And then so. I then I actually went back and did a few more short course races in. 2019 and then went back to 70.3 okay what what happened at those short course events then um i can't remember but i think i think i was probably thinking i wish i was doing 70.3 <laughs> mm. <laughs> because again well again it's uh in short course racing you're under the you're under the umbrella of british triathlon and they have to enter you into races and mm-hmm. yeah the meet criteria to get into races and then there's only a certain number of athletes who can get into a world series race for example yeah and yeah if you if you get ill for a couple of months then your ranking drops down and then it's difficult to get into the races and yeah it's quite challenging when when you do those races as well i guess from from the performance director's point of view it's all about getting enough points for GB to have the right number of athletes at the Olympics, yeah. isn't it? And so yeah. sometimes you're you're a point scorer, even though you know that exactly. you, you, you might not have a chance of making it onto the Olympic squad. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you're very much a team player. But also did, did um, th- there's races now where tactics um, come into play mm-hmm. and, and some, some races are seen as domestiques. Did you um, ever come across that? Was it ever expected of you or asked of you? Yeah, there was um, there was a time where part of the racing strategy was that if you've got somebody up the road, then and you're in the chase pack, then you don't chase. Yes. And I was racing in a time where we had strong swimmers who were always going to be out of the water mm. in the front in the front pack or first, and I was never going to be in that pack. So there are quite a few occasions where you're where I'm riding the bike and I'm powerless to do anything mm-hmm. other than just roll around and wait for the run or hope it all comes back together which okay. is yeah it's it's a tricky situation to be in because you want to be the team player but also you know that it's affecting your ability to get a result that's that you deserve yeah mm. yeah I can see how that would be challenging um because the reason you're selected for those events right and the reason you're in the top echelon of the national um rankings is because you're a racer and now you've been told to ha- to to sort of harness um your instincts and shackle them and um yeah. and and not do what not do what you naturally <laughs> like doing yeah exactly 
exactly yeah <laughs> mm. exactly <laughs> yeah. and i think it's 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 great that we can chat about these indie because i think um a lot of folks that read the magazines or the forums perhaps don't understand some of the intricacies of of racing they yeah. again like i said earlier you're a pro athlete right you just go out and give it your best and uh you know what what you're doing back there not trying um but yeah. sometimes perhaps they don't realize that you've been told not to try because um somebody else has got to um you know got to get yeah. the, got to get the applause <laughs> um, and i guess racing at 70.3 you are very much your own your own team aren't you yeah, well, that was a big. That was the biggest draw for me was that I could control my cal my racing calendar. I can enter a race and know that I can go to it, <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than wait to see if I'm going to be allowed to go to it. And uh, yeah, I enjoy the distance. I enjoy that it's non-drafting, and that means you you generally do have the strongest swim bike and runner rather than somebody who can swim and then roll around on the bike and run really well. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bit more complete, I think. Do you, do you, how do you find the swim in those events? Do you, do you find oh, it a little, not, easy, little easy to yeah. cope with? It's so nice. There's so much more space. <laughs> it's, it doesn't feel like a fight. And... Yeah, it's a lot. It's a it's a much nicer introduction to the start of a race mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than a bum fight and getting elbows in your nose and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I used to coach um, a couple of guys that were under twenty three GB representatives, and at some points, I'd suggested to them that maybe maybe a bit of water polo might be a good thing for this winter, <laughs> just to yeah. get used to all the elbowing and the punching. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> certainly get used to uh, uh that bun fight that you have when you come into the first and second turn yeah boys. used to swim towards the first boy and you think okay i'm just gonna take a deep breath now because i might not be able to get one for 20 meters so here we go and then just head down get around it <laughs> yeah i know when when i used to do my Ironman races you know and I was always towards the front of the swim but I would still give it a, you know prefer to swim an extra 20 meters and keep control of my heart rate than have it go up you know above my threshold just just because I was trying to wrestle my way through the through yeah. the melee yeah it's tricky <laughs> um we talked about adversity a little bit I know you've had a a, a little bit of adversity in your time um there was one fairly famous incident which made the national newspapers i think didn't it about your bike um easyjet weren't easyjet weren't particularly careful about how they looked after it (laughs) yeah i still it still blows my mind i don't know how it happened but traveling out to a training camp and my bike arrived with the rear chain stage just completely smashed up the through axle had been sheared in half and yeah that a fairly hefty blow, I think, had happened. And so, yeah, I was left without a race bike with about six weeks to go before the start of the season. Wow. And, of course, that's, they always claim that it could have happened anywhere, so it's not their responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Luckily, I've got good bike insurance, and I managed to figure out a a solution quite quickly. Which was? But, which was... Um, well, my insurance company helped me pay for a frame that had been found for me through specialised 
because I've got a mate that's got a good relationship with Specialized. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I managed to find a solution within about a week um, and a stressful situation that could have been a lot more stressful because it was also a time when the bike industry was having all those supply chain issues and nobody could get hold of anything for love and money. And mm-hmm. so I was just envisioning in my head, well, that's it. Like probably not going to be able to race this year. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> um, but obviously catastrophizing and <laughs> it was all right in the end. So when, when that happens, cause I, I guess, you know, if you travel with your bike, that's one of the sort of fears that it's going to get damaged or it's not going to arrive. Yeah. Um, most of the time when it doesn't arrive, it normally gets found and then it arrives a day later. So all's not lost. But I, I know people who've had um, uh, derailleur hangers bent. And of course, if uh, the derailleur yeah. hangers bent and it's snapped and you haven't got, you haven't had the foresight to have a spare with you, um, yeah. that can be a nightmare if you haven't got, a, if you've got an off the, not got an off the peg bike, getting one of those quickly. Um, having, you know, wheels that get bent or disc brakes that get that get um, bent so they don't work. Um, how do you deal with that? You know, because it's your living we're talking about here. Yeah. It's not it's not your hobby. It's your living, and, a, and a, one of your work tools is now damaged to stop you working. So, you yeah. know, do you, do you lose your temper and kick a few things around? Do you shout and scream, or do you are you are you sort of uh, um, smart enough to take a big deep breath, count to ten, and then uh, think about the best solution to fix it? Uh, well, I rarely lose my temper at anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm usually quite calm about things and try and work it out in a logical way. Mm-hmm. My biggest thing is definitely trying to reduce the risk of things happening in the first place. So I'm quite meticulous when I'm packing my race bike specifically. I'll, I take everything off it basically. Like, well, rear neck I take off and I'll take the chain off and pack it quite well now that I've got a I've got a hard shell box which I didn't have before and I didn't have one before before people say oh you should have had one I didn't have one before because I couldn't afford to buy one so I had the one that I had (laughs) and something happened which wasn't good so now I've got a hard shell box and it's an investment that's worth it um and so yeah I just try and prevent stuff from happening before it happens but you can't always you can't control everything can you no you can't and that's a good point is you, you just try to con- it's like that whole control the controllables right yeah. you you do everything you can once once you've put that bike on the carousel and it's yeah. gone off um it's the baggage baggage handlers that yeah. are in charge then and uh, you, you definitely don't want to be sitting on the plane in a window seat <laughs> right next to the bit where they're loaded luggage and watch them chucking no. your bike on do you because <laughs> It's better off not knowing, isn't it? I just yeah. I send it off through that that excess luggage thing, and I just say, yeah, see you at the other end, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the other end, hold your breath for a minute as you open your box up to see if everything's okay, and then just when everything's all right, you can then be calm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had a, deal with I, it. I had a friend who'd had a, a problem with a bike. They had they had one of those hard shell cases, and whatever they'd done, the wheel that was on the bottom that's part of the moldy bottom had just com- it just completely been pushed in. Oh. And so the, the fiberglass of the case had completely, yeah. completely cracked all the way around the wheel and oh, it had damaged no. the frame. And after that, every time we traveled, they'd get the bike case and undo it and pretty much have everything out in the, <laughs> yeah. in the terminal there going through it, <laughs> see if it was damaged. 
<laughs> oh yeah it's yeah it's it can be stressful traveling to a race is definitely worse than when you're coming home because <laughs> you just say oh it could just be, all be a waste of time traveling to a race and you get there and your bike's either not arrived or bit smashed well that's happened to a few athletes i've been coaching who have turned up often they're traveling too late so they go into a, a race in europe and arriving on a saturday morning or on a friday and and at that point even if your bike hasn't just made it onto the plane there's no time to get it you know it's something yeah. i always say to people just go a day earlier yeah. You know, so, yeah so at least you've got a time to go to the expo and try and get a replacement um yeah. On the way back, though, I always find it's a blessing because it means you don't have to schlep around the airport and all the travel yes. to get home with it, and they'll deliver it for you anyway. Very true. Yeah, I'm hoping mine will be delivered today from Finland. But <laughs> yeah, you don't know. Well, um, and I know you raced at Finland. Um, yeah. There's been a bit of a hoo-ha around Lionel Sanders, hasn't there, about that race? Yeah. And um, he he got a penalty. Now, um, let's let's talk about Lionel first. He <laughs> he allegedly went over the centre of an imaginary line that wasn't there and got and got disqualified. But Yeah. Yeah. Um what are your well, thoughts on what are your thoughts on that whole thing? Because usually with Lionel, he he's wears his you know, his heart on his sleeve, but there's yeah. usually a bit more to it as well. Yeah. I think it's it's challenging in Ironman races because of the way that they well I guess the all triathlon races, the way the penalties are handed out, it's just the referee's word is final and there's not really any way to challenge it in the moment or after the fact that's constructive. And I think there were, there were a couple of, of penalties at uh, St. George last year, the world champs in St. George. And um, there seemed to be some kind of traction in trying to create a, a more constructive way of, dealing with penalties whether there's video whether the referees have to have video evidence to show after the race to justify it or not but then that's gone a little bit quiet so mm. yeah <laughs> I mean that, that was was it Sam Long at um, St George last year that was seemed to be unfairly yeah. penalised and yeah. you know I mean if Lionel's been going around I've not seen I didn't watch the race um, but if Lionel's crossed the road and it's put him in danger, even if there's no line, you're, yeah. you're still on the wrong side of the road. But yeah. there's also some fairly clear footage of Christian Blumenfeld riding outside, exactly. outside a white line that is painted on the road. So yeah. if that if that's a pit, now I guess if the referee isn't there, he can't see it and he can't exactly. penalise it. But yeah. it's but then you'd think if there's video evidence, then yeah, could you not re retrospectively? enforce it but it doesn't yeah. seem to have, it wouldn't have mattered for christian would it i think he's no. <laughs> outside the top 30 so uh, um but but and i know you know the lionel the lionel tribe were getting on and saying it's because he because he he's told iron man he's not doing them anymore i think he, he hasn't <laughs> said he's not doing iron man anymore he's just said he's done with racing that full distance hasn't he yes so, um, exactly he still That's likes the conspiracy theorists <laughs> yeah oh, that conspiracy theory just <laughs> um, have you had have you had any unfair penalties like that? Because that again, that's uh, yeah, that's that's, I, ad, that's adversity that you have to deal with, isn't it? Particularly as as it might be costing you a few pennies. Uh, yeah, I had a penalty in St George last year, similar to Sam Long, where um, I was I got a penalty for blocking, apparently. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, it was a controversial one as well. But obviously my profile isn't as big as Sam Long, so it, the controversy doesn't reach as far. But um, yeah, I was riding in the front group. I was third in the race um, and yeah, I was given a five-minute penalty that I ended up, I finished 11th and it was probably the race of my life and mm. yeah had a five minute penalty but hey can't like yeah can't you can't challenge it so there's nothing you can do so you just got to accept it which is ridiculous but i'm not going to i'm not going to get stressed about it and think yeah. about the what ifs because i just get depressed <laughs> no and that's a very mature attitude to take but still you know, um, five, five, uh, finishing 11th and f- five minutes plus slowing down and getting yeah. going again. It's more like six or seven minutes, isn't it? By the time you yeah. get your rhythm back and you get your mind uh-huh. um, into that thing, you know, that, that, you know, if everything continued going well, that would, that would probably have been a top 10 um, and maybe surprise me. Yeah, money. I think it, it, could, it could potentially have been a top five and obviously a top five in the world is a lot easier to attract sponsors and income and prize money mm. than 11th. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I it, mean, 11, 11th, to, 11th <laughs> to St. George is like, you're out of pocket all that travel, aren't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, Probably just and, break even, I think. And that, so that's really, you know, again, yeah, you can't do anything about it, so no point in getting upset, but still... It, it, still, take, it, it still takes a strong mind to not get upset in a situation like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I've done quite a lot of work on it. <laughs> have, have you have you done have you had a lot of sort of mental skills training for things like that? Then not like not formal mental skills training. Just I listen to a lot of podcasts, watch a lot of things, and read about it because I'm interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I guess some of that has gone gone in yeah. and stuff. So mm. yeah, I think it's uh, looking at the bigger picture and having a good perspective over everything, rather than getting too caught up and thinking that triathlon is the be all and end all of ev- of everything. Because at the end of the day, it's just I'm just messing around, swimming, biking, and running, aren't I? Like it's not it's not saving the world. <laughs> Um, no, it's not, but it's still it's still your livelihood. So it's uh, yeah. again, it's a it's a very mature attitude to have because I know that there's not not everybody feels like that or is able to think like that. Um, what about injuries? Because they're almost a part and parcel of elite sport, aren't they? Regardless of what event you do, um, do you have the same pragmatic approach to injuries? Um, well, touch wood. I've been quite lucky with injuries and I haven't had any I haven't had anything major that's set me back for a long period of time yet mm. um so yeah I've been quite fortunate on that front but I have had quite a few bouts of getting sick quite a bit so mm-hmm. I guess that's it's a similar situation that you're in where if you can't train then it's it's hard because that's supposed to be your job and that's how you're yeah like you said just now that that's how I'm gonna earn a living so yeah it's it's challenging not being able to do the thing that 
you need to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I guess I just you've just got to take it day by day. Um, not having many injuries is a, is a great position to be in. That shows a lot of resilience, particularly with the amount of training that um, you're obviously doing. Do you attribute that to anything? Um, do you do you are you proactive in sort of um, making your body more robust? Uh, yeah, I think I learned a lot of lessons from the time in America and not being well, being diligent in making sure that I'm not malnourished. I think that's quite a big thing. I, I'm very conscious of. Uh, not overdoing the training too much and knowing when it's right to take a step back and just have a more chill day uh, or week. And I, I maybe I'm, I think I'm just lucky that I'm perhaps a more robust and have been doing it for so long. So my, my body's just, just used mm-hmm. to it perhaps. So you don't do any specific strength or mobility work that helps? I, I I do, but I don't. I'm not diligent with it, and I should probably do more than I do do. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm just. I've been lucky up to this point, but maybe maybe I'll stop being so lucky as I get a bit older. <laughs> I, I I do wonder whether that background you had when you were growing up of doing lots of different sports and and conditioning your body to move in multiple ways, not just going mm. forwards, helps. I I look at. Um, athletes like Marinda Carfrey, who had a basketball career, didn't she? Yeah. Craig, Craig Alexander, who I also feel are the best looking runners I've seen. You know, they've just got <laughs> yeah. such good techniques. They're really compact yeah. and they've, they've just, they just look so smooth. Um, I wonder how, whether that's just my confirmation bias that those things all matter <laughs> or whether that's just luck. Um, but I do wonder whether that, um, multi-directional development of bones and tissues and ligaments helps in later life with um, robustness yeah I think it I think there could be something in it for sure just I I guess a lifetime of being active and yeah just it's gotta it's gotta it's got to have some effect hasn't it Mm -hmm. um you've had some really big results uh, you know, we talk about the the disappointments. The championship. You were the champion of the championship. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a fairly significant uh, result, isn't it? Um, tell yeah. us about tell us about that race. Um, okay. Well, I uh, yeah, it was a good race, really good race. But I turned up to transition on the morning of the race, and my rear mech wasn't working, so I did it all on a single speed. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I um yeah I got to transition on the morning of the race and my rear mech had just it's a it's electronic but it wasn't the battery it was the battery was fine uh, it was just some kind of software malfunction which meant that it wasn't changing gear at all so I spent about half an hour trying to get it to change gear which didn't happen so I just put it in one gear and that was going to be my gear for the race so I guess I went to the start line and I had nothing to lose because I thought I'm probably going to get onto the bike I'm not going to be able to ride but I had a bit of a nas swim got out got onto the bike and I just got really a little bit angry don't usually get angry don't get Mm -hmm. furious I don't yeah don't get cross at stuff 
and I just got angry because I thought, no, like, I'm ready for this race. I was going to be competitive. I'm not going to let this not be my day. So I got onto the bike and just went for it. I thought, I'll just ride for as long as I can. If if it all goes to pot, then I've given it my best shot. And I ended up riding really well and got off and ran really well. And then I won. And it was, yeah, it was a great day. <laughs> it's it's a fairly flat course around there, isn't it? So I guess that If there was helps. any course that you could ride a one-by on, it's that one. <laughs> <laughs> and what gear were you stuck in then? Was it something where you had a... to uh, pedal a bit to get some momentum or did you have to keep um, freewheeling to uh, get, get you? Uh, well, there was a headwind. It was basically an out and back. And then you go on the other side of a river and it's out and back. And it was a headwind out and a tailwind back. Uh, so on the way out, I had to churn quite a big gear. Well, it was like low cadence on the way out and super high cadence on the way back in. Mm-hmm. I was in a, I think it was 54, 16. I was wow. in something like that. <laughs> That's a fairly big gear. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. It was as far up as I just got the limiter screw on the, on my, Reader earlier, and that was that was as far up the cassette that I could get. Mm. Yeah, because uh, that's the one thing about DI two; it sort of has that default gear, doesn't it? If it yeah. won't work. Yeah. Well, and then I, I'm I'm in a good skills also because there's a lot of triathletes I know who wouldn't know what to do about the uh, the limiter screw if things weren't working. Yeah. Well, do you do, you do all your, do you do all your own bike mechanics? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I love it. Yeah. Is that is that part of you being a painter, direct, uh, painter and de- uh, direct, painter and decorator <laughs> that you like working with hands and sort of solving yeah. those sorts of problems as well? Yeah, I'm like I'm super practical. So yeah, in my friend group, I'm the one that does like all the fixing of stuff. <laughs> People have got a, a wobbly cupboard. I'll I'll fix it or yeah things like that. And um, yeah, bike bike mechanic stuff. Partly because I think it's good as a professional to know mm-hmm. how your equipment works because you could be stuck on the side of the road mid-race and have something go wrong. And if you don't know how to fix it, then your race is over. But if you just take a bit of time to learn how to fix stuff, then your race doesn't need to be over. So, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, I've I've been in the expo at, at, um, in Hawaii and at some other events and you know, some of the pros have absolutely got no clue and no Thank care, you. no care for their equipment at all. It comes along and they they bring it along, dump it with the mechanic. It's in a right state. <laughs> they, they they bring it along at sort of four o'clock on the afternoon before the race <laughs> and expect it to be fixed for tomorrow morning. Yeah. The poor old mechanics are there sort of trying to look after it and doing all <laughs> the other stuff as well. And then uh, somebody just chucks them this thing that's covered in grease and dirt. And yeah. Oil. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, it makes you, it does make you wonder what would happen if it went wrong on the side of the road. Probably just yeah. throw it into the ditch. Oh no, it's broken. Can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a little bird told me that you've you've got a, uh, a um, this idea in your head about doing some gravel biking now. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I've I've done a few. Uh, well, I do I do a lot of cyclocross racing in the winter, mm. and uh, I've really got this a strong draw towards doing some gravel racing i've done a couple of races but to be honest i don't really know how to get into these races and how to go about it but yeah it's something that i really i think i'd really enjoy it so 
Yeah, I love it. I, I spend most of my time riding off road. <laughs> mm. Where do you, where do you ride it. then? You, where do you live now? I live in Hampshire. Okay, so where do you tend to ride on your gravel bike? Uh, South Downs. There's just, there's loads of loads of greenery everywhere. New Forest. <laughs> new Forest. Yeah, riding New Forest. There's lots of gravel in the New Forest. Um, Salisbury Plain. Mm-hmm. Where the uh, army train. Yeah, it's great around here. Have you done the King Alfred's Way? I haven't. I haven't done the whole thing, but I ride. I live quite near to it, so I ride different sections of it all the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, a, couple, a couple of summers ago, we did that over three days. Did you? Um, with some, yeah, it was a bikepacking thing. So we, we were camping as well. Yeah, it was. Br- oh wow! Br- brilliant fun. It can get. It, we we were lucky that the route was pretty dry, but with with the type of soil you get there, it's that that clay and the flint. You know, it's yeah. really easy to get your tire slashed open by the flint. Yeah. And if it and if that clay gets wet, it's like riding on ice. It's awful. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I've had experience of that. And <laughs> sticky as well. Super sticky. And then you can get on I think on some of the sections there's some like tank track kind of thing. So you can just get stuck in a rut and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i've I've done a bit of dorset it's pretty good for riding as well you know that the, there's not many main roads down there and there's lots of bridle paths that go across farmland yeah. um more undulating than the sort of riding you get in the yorkshire dales which is just more like mountain bike type stuff yeah yeah it's yeah i uh, i'm not i'm not really aware of that many that many races like you get um you get in the united states there's some a really really um well-run gravel racing series isn't there that a lot of the pro yeah. athletes are racing in now so you might have to you might have to go back to america indy and then yeah. stay over there for a bit <laughs> stay over there for a year or so yeah maybe that would be fun <laughs> mm. well it's it's been great to catch up thank you so much for being on the show i appreciate you being so open and sharing and sort of telling us about your career it's um it's been interesting to find out about you cool well thanks for having me i've enjoyed it yeah no it's been good um Hopefully we'll get you back again once you've uh, once you've got that gravel biking um, yeah. career launched. We'll we'll have another chat and talk about how you're taking that bit by storm. Sounds good. <laughs> okay, India. Thank thanks very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you again to India for being my guest on this week's show. I particularly like the way she tried to stay under the radar with her training and do things her own way, and which is proof of the fact that you don't have to take the well-trodden path in order to achieve success. To make sure you don't miss any one of our episodes in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click on the subscribe button. And if you have time while you're there, we'd really appreciate it if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, do you like reading books or listening to them as an audiobook? If you do, then I have something you might be interested in. If you ever pay attention to our show notes, you may have seen that we ask our guests to recommend their favourite book, something that's inspired or captivated them. And we've slowly been compiling a list of all of these over the years, which now extends to well over 200 different books. So if you'd like the full PDF book list, please click on the very obvious link in the show notes below. And while you're there, make sure you check out the show notes for all of the other links to things I've talked about in the podcast. Okay, that's all for this week. Next week, I will have another great guest and I hope that you'll be able to join me.
see you then. <laughs>